BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, I'm Puck Romain. Hi, I'm George Chen, and welcome to SubDoc, the show where we talk documentaries with guests from the worlds of comedy, film, television, and more. And today's documentary is Too Soon Comedy After 9-11, where you can catch on Vice TV on September 8th, just a few days before the 20th anniversary of the 2001 attacks. The documentary features interviews with comedians, included David Cross, Gilbert Gottfried, Janine Garofalo, and Mark Maron, about the struggle to reestablish humor's place in the aftermath of the attacks that day. The film explores how stand-up comedians, Broadway performers, late-night hosts, and Saturday Night Live helped audiences laugh even in the darkest of days. Our guest today is Julie Seabaugh, the director, executive producer, and star editor of Too Soon, Comedy After 9-11. Julie founded and edited the comedy magazine Two Drink Minimum, now the only full-time freelance comedy journalist in the United States. She's contributed to the New York Times, Rolling Stone, and The Hollywood Reporter. And now... Here's Julie Seba. Hi, Julie. Hey. You're reminding hey. me I should I should probably update my bio. A little bit. <laughs> you wrote a book too that we didn't. Yeah, you, that yeah you wrote a book about the roast battles as well. Yeah, ringside at roast battle. The first five years of LA's Fight Club for comedians. That was uh, 2018. Nice. Um, when that came out for the fifth anniversary of the show, just kind of tracing how it went from. You know, this open mic that was going to have a fist fight between two comedians and instead they, you know, chose to (laughs) duke it out using their words. And, you know, five years later, it just was this international phenomenon that you don't really see every day in comedy. And there's just so many imitators and, you know, just people around the world love it. And I've always been a big fan. So I just kind of wanted to uh, capture that all in the moment as it was happening. And then, uh, you know, when they make a movie out of it someday, then they'll have to use my book. Uh, (laughs) Yes. Let's cast that book. Um, (laughs) So who who are the comedians? Can you tell us who are the two comedians that we're going to fight? Do we know? Yeah, um, there, well, let's, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to like, <laughs> name the one of them anymore. <laughs> That's fun. That's fun. <laughs> but was it uh, at the um, comedy store where the fight was to happen? Yeah, it was upstairs in the belly room. Brian Moses was running, um, a kind of low key open mic where like anything goes and you could sort of make fun of each other and make fun of the comedy store and make fun of Booker Adam Egit. And, you know, everyone was kind of taking on these different roles and sides. And, uh, yeah, they just kind of started uh, applying rules to it and finally got Jeff Ross up to take a look at it after a a long time of encouraging him because they just thought he would get a kick out of it. And, um, yeah, then he threw in some production muscle and... 
They made the festival rounds. They were up at Just for Laughs Montreal, got a TV deal, and yeah, the rest is history. Often imitated, uh, but still not quite as good as it is, like being up in that tiny belly room with everyone, you know, uh, giving their best insults and chanting and sweating and cheering and the DJ. And there's, yeah, nothing like it that I found in comedy so far. It is weird that a just a like monthly produce show at a comedy club would go on to like be so significant and people people loved it. Like getting into that room at like the height was almost impossible, it seemed. Oh, yeah. Standing room only. You know, um, you often see like famous people just kind of sticking their head in to see what's happening. And it, um, it was actually every Tuesday night, just a, a slight correction. So weekly, um, which is kind of how I think it was able to, you know, build its presence and reputation so much. Cause people knew like late night Tuesdays, the comedy stores, like the place to be. Now, Julie, I have a question too, because like the, the format you have done with this is oral history, right? Were you, were you a fan of like other types of oral histories? Is there a lot of tradition of like oral histories of comedy? Um, I'm, I'm more familiar with like, you know, like there's obviously a lot of like music oral histories, like a book, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, a please kill me or something about like the punk scene. That's like an oral. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, there's uh, the SNL one, there's, um, you know, Farley. Um, yeah, I've, I've always been, and I actually did um, for the, I guess, 10th year anniversary of the Aristocrats documentary that Paul Provenza and Ben Gillette did. I did a big oral history on that for uh, KNPR Las Vegas Radio because they Obviously, Penn does a show there, but also the idea for the aristocrats came from the two of them hanging out late night one night in the Peppermill Lounge, which is a kind of famous after hours, you know, pink and blue and purple neon diner uh, just off the strip in Las Vegas. So, um, yeah, I've done a few of those. I've done uh, one on Sam Kennison in 2007, also for Las Vegas Weekly, because he, you know, kind of passed away in a car accident um, outside of Laughlin, which, you know, falls under the Las Vegas geography banner. Um, yeah, there, there's always something to me about people using their own words and also being able to kind of compare and contrast memories of like, there's nothing funnier when people have differing memories of the things that happened. Um, yeah, I just, I just love that about comedy, how in certain ways to me, it's less about the jokes per se and more about what's happening behind them of, the context of not only the era, what's happening in the industry at that time, what's happening in society, what's happening in that person's life, what inspired this material, what, you know, made them start going in this new direction where they're less general and more personal. Um, Yeah, that's always been something that I loved about comedy in a way that I never saw covered earlier on when I was kind of starting out my career. Like music coverage could go into depth about all of those things. Um, 
Yeah, but comedy was kind of always just shoved in with <laughs> like the calendar listings. Dude, it's always it was used to be like in the SF Weekly and the SF Bay Guardian, the comedy shows would be like under spoken word and poetry readings. Right. And then under that would be the comedy shows. It's always been the red haired stepchild of enter any entertainment section in any weekly. Because you at can't any time. preview. It's hard to preview is one thing. Well, I mean, and I people like, didn't yeah. care either. There was a time <laughs> when nobody cared about comedy in this country I mean, unless you were famous. If you're on The Tonight Show or Letterman or something, people cared about you. My friend, my friend, Haya Swanheiser, who is at SF Weekly, she like really like I mean, when like Kamau Bell started doing like his, you know, one man shows. It's like, oh, there's something you can actually like preview and like really like get it in like preview listings and that kind of thing. So it's a little bit different than stand. Well, the and if I may, I I I started my show here in San Francisco, the Romaine event in 2003, and I could not get anyone to put it anywhere in any publication. So I just started sending press releases, handwritten press releases to journalists at San Francisco Chronicle and the Bay Guardian and all that stuff just to be like maybe if they see it in front of their face enough, they'll like maybe put it in a publication or something. But every time I get one of those things i'd look from the name of my show and it'd be like page 72 next to the viagra pill ads and you know like the weird shit in the back of the bay guardian it's like ah that's where i'm at i guess but now yeah. it's moved comedy those comedy show listings have moved all the way up though it's been pretty wild to see yeah 2003 was when i started writing professionally as well um graduated in in late 2002 i took an extra semester at the university of missouri good for you um and moved right to new york and yeah i, I was looking around and you just see it kind of shoved in the corner and you see yes. comedians being fairly interchangeable in clubs at that time where people would just go to see comedy and have yes. no idea who they're seeing what you know the the vibe of the material is going to be, is it clean? Is it dirty? Is it going to be, is Props. something that they politically, oh gosh. Yeah. Um, you never you know, knew. So it's definitely been really interesting and kind of gratifying to see. Now there's actually a lot more people covering comedy in a professional context so, so and what, comedians have like their own fan base. What made that, you one of the first then? What was it about comedy and you and who you are that you were like, I want to start covering these miscreants, these little lizard people? Like, <laughs> did you try your hand at stand up and or I've I've never been interested in performing stand up. Um, I was always uh, so I grew up on a farm in Missouri. Oh. Um, what, what kind? Uh, corn and soybeans, and there were um, apparently some milk cows when I was really little, but I don't some really dairy. remember them. Some dairy cows, some heifers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, and he d didn't have cable. I didn't really know what stand-up comedy was growing up, and um, I was always reading books. And then I apparently was good at writing, is what teachers told me. So it was more of a writing thing. So I was. Um, you know, thought I was going to go into English journalism kind of thing, which I did at the University of Missouri and was writing more about film and music. And then senior year, Dave Attell came and did a show. The master. At Jesse Auditorium. And I got to interview him on the phone beforehand and ask him stupid questions uh, and then go backstage afterwards and he took a couple of us, uh, you know, across the street to the journalism bar, the Heidelberg, which has since 
burnt down. Um, but this was the height of insomniac and everybody was sending him Jaeger shots from around the bar and I, you know, got a little drunk or whatever and woke up (laughs) on my friend Dan's bathroom floor. Like, I like this comedy thing. I think there's something (laughs) there to it. You came into comedy the way most comics end their career on the floor (laughs) in their friend's bathroom. Yeah. Just the idea of, um, you know, growing up in a very conservative religious area and then started questioning that as I get older, kind of put in, put me in a state of searching for like, what is truth? What is, you know, people will make commentary about society, but what's their angle on it? Why are they saying what they're saying? Um, and I just found something about comedy could relay the truth in a way that news didn't seem to be doing. Um, yeah, so I just kind of fell in love with the way comedians move society forward in a lot of ways. They talk about things that we find uncomfortable personally, professionally, politically. Uh, they're right there kind of making us think about things in new ways. You know, if you look at a history of Richard Pryor, Bill Hicks, George Carlin, uh, you know, even Phyllis Diller from, you know, the the quote-unquote housewife perspective, these are people who were leading the way in helping society progress, and that's never become boring to me in my now 19 years of covering comedy. Yeah, still love it. That's wow. That's that's a, a very important aspect of comedy that I'm not sure everyone keeps in mind when they go see comedy. Is like comics are trying to to have a conversation with a, a, a broad swath of people, which is hard by itself, and then speak some truths. And it's weird how, like in in too soon your documentary, um, how speaking truth, especially to power, punching up when you even if you do it at a time that may not seem reasonable can push what your mess push push your message forward and even put you kind of into a spotlight you know where you didn't may not have thought you would be if you tried it you know what i'm saying like some people t- took that in your documentary you basically showed people took risks and they wanted to tell the truth and they wanted to ch- tell the truth to power and they wanted to tell the truth to people and that helped a lot of folks out and including themselves for sure for sure like there's Something I love about being in a room of a bunch of strangers watching a comedy show from all sorts of diverse backgrounds and they can laugh at the same thing in the same moment. And like we're we're connected on this idea. (laughs) You know, if we could all laugh about this, we can make some progress as we venture out into the world and go our separate ways. And especially for comedians who started going on stage in the wake of 9-11, you know, this is before social media. It wasn't like they were being captured on cell phones and, you know, used as controversial clickbait of, look at this line that this person said. Can you imagine now (laughs) what would happen, like the the clickbait raw story nonsense that would happen? Chaos. Chaos. It would be chaos for sure. You have to be... In that room with the person on stage in the moment and understand where they're coming from. And it's not just about 
the words. It's about how they're feeling, what they're trying to communicate with you. And yeah, like you said, after 9-11, it was just about kind of trying to share what you're thinking about, how you're trying to process the grief. And, you know, some people didn't like to hear how comedians are processing grief, but others really cling on to it. Like in, <laughs> in the documentary we have, you know, like Chris Italia, for example, who now has the stand comedy club in New York. He was the first responder who used comedy to stop himself from killing himself, stuff like that. Comedy can really have that effect on people. I just find it fascinating. Yeah, well, that that is fascinating because it's especially, I mean, comedy's so complex. Like, it, sometimes you have a national tragedy like 9-11, and it could have really torn things apart. You know what I'm saying? Like, th- people could have gone to their separate corners and been like, no, like, your comedy doesn't work anymore. Like, shut up. You can't do that anymore. We don't do comedy like that anymore. Now it's props and puppets and slideshows. That's all we can take now. You know, it's it's pretty, I don't know, maybe it is the advent, the fact that there wasn't social media back then that everyone seemed to kind of have a voice, you know, in... I don't know. George, you have a... I was just... When you said puppets, I was just like, oh, I you did you... I think there was, like, maybe a mini clip of Jeff Dunham in here. Because when I think of, like, people that went the <laughs> other no, direction thinking. of, like, away from empathy and vulnerability and, like, understanding other cultures, you have Jeff Dunham with, like, his dead terrorist puppet. The yeah. fucking worst shit. Um, in my <laughs> well, opinion, humbly. <laughs> well, we did uh, make an attempt. We, we were going to try to interview him, and it just kind of didn't work out schedule-wise. Same thing. Uh, Dennis Miller. Same Wait, thing. the puppet or Jeff? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's maybe, yeah, maybe we should have talked to the, the puppet's publicist instead. Maybe that would have worked out better. Yeah, Dennis um, Miller, right, yeah. Like you had some people that really swung right, like Dennis Miller was already swinging right. You, you have a clip of him in there, yeah. Yeah, and then also, I mean, even, um, you know, Nick DiPaolo was somebody who was around in that Mm. comedy seller scene who became more political in a right direction. Um, You started seeing comics on Tough Crowd with Colin Quinn kind of debating these issues in more of a roundtable forum. Um, And Mark Maron, you know, he he says, yeah, we we definitely started seeing uh, comedians uh, start having a divergence of opinion on what was appropriate or not to say, which you never really saw before in comedy until this point. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, before that, it was the problem was is like, who's got the best airplane food joke, you know, and who's stealing whatever joke. And after something like that, I guess I guess maybe my point is not true. What I was saying before, maybe after something like that, you really do find out where people stand, you know, because they they, they're going to be like, I'm I'm going to go on stage and tell my truth and my truth might be that I'm behind Bush and I'm behind the war and I'm behind going after these people and people from other countries suck you know America 100% I don't know why I just did a southern accent but I did so (laughs) please excuse that but then there's the other side too where you have people being like this is insane like what are we doing we can't you know go bomb other countries that weren't involved and and then I think it was like 
Uh, uh, so you were probably in your twenty, early twenty. Were you still in college in nine eleven yeah. when nine eleven happened? Yeah, I was a junior in college. Um, and definitely remember the day uh, we had a class uh, that everybody went to and just complained that we had to go to. And then I re- spent the rest of the day back at the Heidelberg again. Shocking! Mm-hmm. Drinking for the rest of the day <laughs> at the bar. Um, Yeah, it wasn't, and I'd been at New York, been to New York a few times at that point, um, and even stayed down there Mm. at the World Trade Center at the Embassy Suites um, on a magazine club trip from from the journalism school, so I kind of knew the area and visualized what had been happening uh, that I just saw on TV. Um, but I wasn't, yeah, I was, I was very much still a college student and you think, you know, more about the world than you do at that point. And so it did take a good, um, you know, 15 years to really understand what was kind of happening and be able to corral all my comedy resources and call in a bunch of favors <laughs> to all the comedians I knew to start working on this uh, with my partner, Nick Scown. He's actually the other director on this documentary. Um, it was his idea to make this film. Um, you know, he's a real actual professional filmmaker and knew me through a mutual comedian friend and kind of approached me in the spring of 2016 with this idea he had. And I immediately glommed onto it and, you know, saw an opportunity to kind of talk about my experiences with the comedy world. And we bonded over both reading The Onion Issue that first came out, you know, a week and a half after the attacks. And it was definitely the first time both of us remembered laughing again. So that was, you know, the kernel of inspiration for where this whole thing started, like predating the Trump presidency, even. So it's been a long five years labor of love. You should be able to do comedy that's good and wise and funny the day before a tragedy or the day after a tragedy. And The Onion proved that. We've been here nine months and still hadn't put out issues on the street in New York. Finally got it together enough to have, you know, an issue. And we're having a party to celebrate that. And that was um, September 10th. We ended up not running anything. By the end of the week, we decided that we would, you know, come back into work on Monday like normal. And I think everyone was just fine with that because all you did was just like watch TV and read the papers and be sad. And I think it wasn't a terrible idea to sort of get back to what you were doing, even though what we were doing was writing jokes. But it just was better than doing nothing. That's a great human coping mechanism is laughing at things. Finding the right thing to laugh at, you know, is hard. So that was the clip with Todd Hansen talking about The Onion and what The Onion was going through and whether or not they should have an article. And they actually pulled their publication from the stands for that first week. And i that's when, like, you could start getting – The Onion was just out of Madison, Wisconsin for a long time. And I have friends that worked there when they, they went – they worked at The Onion, went to school in Madison, would tell me about it. And I was always very jealous. Like, that sounds hard and funny and amazing that you guys do that. And then The Onion got enough – like you could start finding it in different places. Like in San Francisco, I could get it at the local bookstore. I, don't, I can't remember what year the Onion actually had kiosks. Do you remember that? Probably two thousand two or seven. Yeah. Oh, okay. They, Earlier. They, well, they they had an office in San Francisco after uh, the events that are 
in the film. I remember that because a friend of mine was actually, I think he was a calendar editor for the same right. version. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when they had that casting call too for faces, for people's faces. <laughs> to be like, you remember like that? Well, yeah. I don't remember that at all. And I should have gone. I got, I was, I wanted to go, but I didn't go. Like and now I, I regret it. For that. Yeah. For the guy. Yeah. Like local, they had an open, local guy. An yeah. Open casting call for just people to come in and get their face. <laughs> photographed and for like local man hates clouds or something. <laughs> um, but we were talking, um, during that clip about how for you, um, the onion was the, f you read it and you said it was the first time you were like, okay, I can laugh at this. Can you want to expound a little bit on that? Yeah, I was actually getting it delivered to me in college at my oh, old wow. party house I lived in. Um, <laughs> this interview Fancy. sounds like I drank a lot. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> uh, <let's, laughs> I like very rarely drink these days. Um, anyway, yeah, it, it, I had, I'd found it, um, you know, yeah, it was cool for college kids to read at that point. And they had just had um, their first book had come out, the collection of all the headlines and they were starting to get known, like a lot of people in New York and L.A. comedy scenes was were fascinated with The Onion, and rightly so. It was always hilarious. And, yeah, I just remember, again, I wasn't in New York at the time, but everybody felt it across the country in one way or another. You know, it, it, there's no one it didn't affect. And when that showed up on my door, it was just like, oh, my gosh, you know, uh, America turns into real life Jerry Bruckheimer film. All right. Uh, America vows to defeat whoever it is we're at war with, uh, not knowing <laughs> what else to do. Woman bakes American flag cake. All right. And I, that's my favorite section of the film just because of the personal memories of reading it and, you know, crying and laughing at the same time and being able to now go back and, you know, talk to Todd Hansen about how he was actually crying as he was writing the story titled God angrily clarifies do not kill rule. It's like, yeah, this is it's, it's universal. We we want to laugh in the face of you know, emotions that make us uncomfortable or challenge us. And it's a way of kind of taking back the power. They don't, these emotions don't control us. We can move forward. And that's basically like the film in a nutshell. I think that the onion just really encapsulates beautifully. Yeah, absolutely. I, that's for me when I, for me, like the breaking point, not the breaking point, the like comedic, um, like the part where you can like, I don't want to say the part where you can laugh again. Cause that just sounds like a Hallmark card, but like, you know what I'm saying? Like it was like very serious for like a week, like super fucking serious. Like my bosses, I worked at Ohm records in that during that time period, my bosses were stuck in New York city cause they were there for a conference and they couldn't fly out. So we were closed for that entire time. And the way I found out is I went to work and our doors were closed that's how I found out about the attacks because I didn't watch the news. You know, I just took the bus down to Ohm Records, couldn't get in, called my boss, couldn't get to him, finally reached another employee, and he's like, dude, turn the news on. 
that's how I found out. I was like, oh, fuck. Okay. But then I was still like, why aren't but can't we still work? I don't know. It seemed weird to me. But <laughs> like then like a week later, the the onion, which I cherished, like every every good bathroom in America should have had an onion, you know, a weekly onion paper in it. So like I loved it so much. And I remember like, holy shit, America under attack. And then like all of those headlines. And it was just like, okay, thank God someone is saying something funny. Like we need, we need some funny in this, you know? And I, Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas city, go Kevin or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I really appreciated like the, the David Letterman clip that you played and the Jon Stewart clip and stuff. But regardless of all of those things, my personal entrance back into comedy was definitely The Onion. That was... Like where I was like, okay, we've got some really smart people kind of handling handling this in a in a good funny way, essentially. Yeah, and there's people, you know, David Cross said the same thing. Like this was the first time he laughed again. Rob Riggle said the same thing. That issue really affected a lot of people in ways that the staff didn't really realize. I think, and I kept that issue. I, I've moved across the country so many times, and it came with me for a long time oh, until wow. it finally started coming, you know, falling apart. Right. I sadly, don't have it anymore. But right. you know, this is this is a way of it kind of living on. I don't remember if it was in the Onion or not, but I do remember at some point reading I think it had to be the onion because it's very oniony it was like San Francisco upset it wasn't bombed too you know like we're just like it's like people here being like we're just as cool as Manhattan man like you know you know I don't know where that was but I remember seeing that and kind of yeah. laughing because we were all just like it could happen here too and people are like eh not so much probably well, it was the line of like, they bombed us because they hate our freedoms. And that was, you know, San Francisco is known for their freedoms. What, our freedoms aren't good enough to get bombed? Right. Uh, my, so if, I got to tell this story because this is ridiculous. But at, a lot of people, I don't know if you got to, you probably do know, but after the 9-11 attacks, there were people sending um, powder to government officials. Oh, anthrax, yeah. Anthrax powder to government officials, which oddly enough gets kind of lost in the history of 9-11, the anthrax stuff, because it was, I think, domestic or something. But my fucking boss at, I'm going to say, I don't care, at Ohm Records was such a fucking narcissist. She thought she was going to get sent anthrax because she was important. And she made me open her mail before it went to her desk so she wouldn't get sick with so i would be the first one to get the anthrax poisoning so which i did because i'm like you're not even important enough 
for me to say good morning to, but let alone someone to send anthrax. Paco, it's probably because you worked at a techno label and you had been snorting all the powders that they <laughs> in the mail. <laughs> maybe. Maybe it was all the techno house music, but I just thought that was the most ridiculous. I was like, God, you suck. Yeah, you're the, you're the canary in her coal mine. I was. I really was. <laughs> there um, was actually, um, we, we did start out having a chunk about that because the uh, SNL staff had, it was, it was two or three, I think, weeks after. Um, I haven't revisited that for a while, but I want to say it was mid-October where um, the news, uh, you know, NBC News got sent anthrax. It was, you're right, it was domesticos from Florida. And so all of Rockefeller had to evacuate the building and uh, the crew had to get swabbed and, you know, all that stuff. But it didn't really quite fit into the narrative of creating comedy. So had to be left on the cutting room floor. Alas. Right, right. So is there, was there anyone that you interviewed that you were kind of surprised by their their story? Anyone in particular that you were touched by or moved by or surprised by? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question um, because it is a it's it's not just all famous comedians. You know, we talk to club owners and bookers. You know, there's I mentioned Chris Italia. There's Chris Mazzilli from Gotham. There's Eddie Esther. Uh, Sorry, <clears throat> S.T. Adoram, who books uh, the Comedy Cellar, and, you know, including their perspectives, too. And also a lot of lesser known comedians. You know, Carmen Lynch was evacuated from her downtown financial temp job on that day. Um, Mark DeMeo was, you know, working as a police detective at that time and had just been doing comedy. I think he said two years the night before, you know, he, he was on an industry showcase and he did well and people gave him some cards and he was, you know, kind of riding high the night of the 10th. And then the next morning he's called down and spends the next however many weeks trying to identify body parts, you know, and, and, you know, looking at his career trajectory all these years later, he talks about being a police officer and, and not necessarily working that day, but you can tell how it affected him. So it's not just comedians being like, oh, I was sad and I did material about it. Uh, there's also a lot of personal stories in it, too, and, and tons of people talking about seeing their friends covered in dust and, you know, you try to connect with them and hang out with them amid all this smoke and you can just smell the horrid acrid smell of building dust and and also like organic matter so understanding that people were kind of going through all of that and had to create comedy in the wake of it um i think it's more important to look at from all levels than just like famous people so yeah I i think some of those smaller stories um connect in unique ways as well with um with uh with i'm curious with nick's uh working with nick what was his you know connection to all this stuff like and like as a topic um that he wanted to dig into and that yeah um Great question. Uh, He was actually going to be looking at New York film schools the week after 9-11. It was already on the books. You know, he had his flights um, 
booked and everything. And he went ahead and did it. Uh, went out there, didn't really end up looking at film schools, but hung out with friends who talked about where they were at, you know, how they heard friends they had lost and just saw firsthand um, in a way that I didn't. Um, and he was going back to get his return flight and the subways were closed down at the World Trade Center, obviously. Um, that whole, uh, you know, financial area and the subways you know, kind of collapsed. So we had to get out and walk down there, like walking through the smoke, rolling his bag and just kind of couldn't really figure out what he was looking at and kind of tried to frame it through a camera lens to, cut, to make some sense of it. So that idea of, of being there always stuck in his mind. And he's not, uh, you know, super dug into the comedy world, but he's a, a professional filmmaker. And so he handled that side of the project and I handled the comedy side of the project. And yeah, we, we, we kind of collaborated in a really good way where we weren't stepping on each other's toes and, and made something that I think we're both really proud of. Yeah, that was one of my questions. Like, yeah, kind of like since this is your first film you've worked on, is that right? So, like, yeah, yeah like yeah. how you structure, like you thought about the structure from a journalistic standpoint that you traditionally have versus like what works as a film. And so, like, there's a lot of archival stuff. There's a lot of first person. Did you do the interviews? Did you conduct the interviews? That was my yep. other question. Yeah, I kind of figured out who we should talk to, um, set them all up, conducted the interviews, figured out transcripts. Um, chopped them all up and did basically, you know, to refer to something said earlier, but it was kind of like an oral history structure to it when I made the paper cut. Um, yeah, just, uh, I think, I forget what the question well, was. I guess I was thinking like, coming, like, yeah, like you take a journalism background and like, like right. structuring like an oral history and then like how that works, like what works filmically or like how much you decided this is going to be just like setting the stage, the chronological kind of sequence you take with certain beats. and stuff. Right, right. Sorry, it's still like is Sunday morning is still I'm, I'm a night owl and it, it feels very early here. <laughs> We've established um, that you're a night owl, Julie. Everyone knows <laughs> yeah. you're a night owl now. <laughs> so to answer your question that I made you repeat, um, yeah, like and I, I love documentaries anyway. I kind of always had it in the back of my mind that that would be something I'd be interested in pursuing later on in my career. And it just happened a little earlier than I thought it would. Um, I can, I don't necessarily know how to use filmic language or do anything on the technical side of it, but I can describe what I think something should look like and sound. And Nick was very, very patient with me in that regard. Um, and it's just a way of kind of telling stories about comedy in a new way. You know, journalism is not at the greatest, healthiest place these days. And as someone who's almost a 20-year veteran, it can be very discouraging to have to work harder and harder for less money and less, um, you know, journalism used to be very respected and now it's just clickbait and hot takes and controversy and it's not even journalism, it's content. Mm -hmm. So uh -huh. this was definitely a way that I saw to, yeah, expand my ability to tell these stories about comedy and, and hopefully uh, find a way to not be constantly broke all the time in the process. <laughs> <laughs> 
Is that a bummer too soon? No, no, that <laughs> is not. I just, I was just about to say, it's like, that's like, you sound like a comedian. I mean, that's what like, you know, you hear from a lot content. of comedians. We're all making it's content. It's like, we just want you to make content now and you're getting paid for the exposure. Mm-hmm. And yeah, sure. Like getting past at the clubs or might be a little harder and this, you know, but if you have a million viewers on YouTube, then we can get you a headlining gig, you know, like, it's like, well, what fucking matters now? Like what fucking matters? Please someone define what matters. And then maybe I can try to use that, but I don't even know what matters anymore. So I I feel your pain when you're talking about as journalism, because I didn't, I didn't even think about that until you just mentioned that. And the amount, because I, my, I'm a, my I have, my job is a, a writer and editor. So like when I I will read CNN and f- there's like misspelled words and doubled usage of and ands and commas that should or should not be. It's like who, what is happening? Like this is CNN's on their main web page, and it's like so many misspelled words. And it's just weird. It's really weird. Um, and I feel your pain about, about what you're saying, especially in your career that you love and you've devoted most of your life to, to see it kind of shrink. And then the, the, the standards change and stuff has got to be kind of weird. Oh, yeah. Let's definitely make it about me for sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So do you feel sorry for me and support this movie? And, uh, Watch your movie. What's your Venmo? Uh, yeah i i mean yeah it's it's tough man it's weird that like i feel i feel like mm, 9-11 was such a weird time because like america it seemed like there was still some innocence i guess you know i mean after the clinton stuff it seemed like a lot of that was eroding anyway, especially with the Republican Congress people that were in office at the time. Those like the Newt Gingriches of the world were already starting to sully the waters anyways, because they were like, fuck all this. We're obviously in the horizon. We'll never be voted in again. We got to change how we got to come up with some voter suppression and make the Democrats look evil. You know, one and two. That's how we're going to do that. And then 9-11 happens. And it was kind of I was like, oh, no, like this is when things can get really fucking bad. Like strongman fascist types love this kind of stuff because they can turn it in their favor and then like, you know, everyone's fucking going insane then. So it was it's pretty amazing that like is comedy dead? Like the press is comedy dead question mark. And it's like of all things to say, is this dead? No, like comedy lives for that kind these kind of moments i think like this is when it fosters people's like really dig deep into their soul and then all of a sudden you're like now i kind of have to go like i don't know i don't know about george if you feel the same way but with me with the pandemic i feel like my set that i used to do pre-pandemic is dumb now i i you know i was watching this and i was thinking a lot oh, i thought you were gonna say i was watching you <laughs> i was watching <laughs> your right. set it was dumb. dumb no um <laughs> I, I was thinking about how this also like the the, the feelings of like not knowing anything and like it feels like that's what the last year and a half has been like also uh to top off this sort of resonance about like hey maybe invading afghanistan is like not gonna work out very well like which we've obviously seen happen in real time uh subsequently it's timely um, yeah uh yeah like there's this sort of i definitely i wasn't doing stand-up in 2001 but like yeah i don't feel like adequately like i know how to address like the situation 
that is occurring now. And I haven't. I haven't been addressing it, really, um, except on this podcast. But I was going to say, like, when you were saying, like, oh, America was kind of innocent before this. I'm like, we just did the Woodstock 99 documentary. What are you talking about? Like, it's true. Garbage for a long time. But it's it's gotten worse. And it was like an opportunistic for a lot of people. Um, I, I was thinking back to, like, what... I've heard, I'm trying to think of like 9-11 jokes I would have heard back then. I wasn't going to comedy very much back then, but um, one of the first comedy shows I went to after 9-11 is a friend of mine was like, hey, it's really cheap to go to the punchline right now. So we went and saw Jeff Cesario and he was, just, I, I don't remember much of the act. He didn't really touch on it, but he was just like, thank you guys for coming out. Thank you so yeah. much. It's like, you know, the, the I, I've not seen the punchline that empty before uh, or since. But I, I was remember. thinking, yeah, yeah. What 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 is a joke that you what's what is a nine eleven joke that you like now? Because I've heard one fairly recently uh, by a friend of mine that I actually like. I, I don't want to do it, but I want to kind of get. I could get the gist of it, or just re- I'll, I'll I'll definitely reference him. <laughs> do, you, do any of you have like a nine eleven joke that you heard maybe back then? I mean, like. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, yeah, that yeah. was that was something that we actually asked all the comedians. Oh, you know, wow. they they would talk about their their material and then also we that was kind of one of the last questions um and this gets a little thorny but the number one answer was <laughs> you might you might already know it but it was always uh <laughs> louis ck <laughs> uh oh yeah <laughs> talking about right um yeah I, I think you can tell how good a person you are by uh, how soon after 9-11 you masturbated like the first time afterwards and uh, for me it was between the two towers going down so <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So, b- before that's really funny though uh yeah before he had his um right canceling um People talked about that joke a lot, and then afterwards it was kind of like, "Are you are you gonna are you gonna use that joke?" Because it was a good in the joke. film, I, I, but now I, it yeah. yeah, but now it has a, a, a bit of a additional meaning sure, to it, of sure course. Thing. Yeah, um, but that was the number one. Okay, um, and I also personally love. You know, Doug Stanhope talking about, um, you know, all the first responders getting hero pussy and and Mm -hmm. that caused its own controversy. Uh, Yeah, the the ones that. uh, Oh, and of course, you know, the the big one, obviously, Gilbert at the Hugh Hefner Rose saying there we go that. Yeah, I got to get out of here early tonight. My flight has a connection at the Empire State Building. (laughs) You know, the the ties into the aristocrats. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. And somebody shouts out too soon, and he has to get them back with the aristocrats joke of the incest and bestiality between the family at the uh, talent agent's office. Um, that's been done in so many movies that we kind of wanted to focus on the, you know, getting getting out of that trench part <laughs> so i think it's amazing that the, the show was so quiet when gilbert was doing his uh empire state building bit that he could hear someone in the back yell too soon <laughs> you know at the, at that's how quiet everything was when someone's like too soon and he's like yeah. fuck okay i mean I'm every, everybody there heard it all the all the people on the dais remember that mm-hmm. 
Um, but but it's also kind of fascinating that that was the same exact night and time that SNL was coming back on their oh, first show. Yeah, just literally five blocks away. It was SNL kind of being safer and more evergreen in their sketches. Mm-hmm. And then over at the Hilton Ballroom, you have uh, right. also also Drew Carey talking about, you know, fuck Osama. You know, he's a cocksucker. Jimmy Kimmel. Everyone was kind of addressing it a little bit because it's an elephant in a room. You want to get it out there. And so you can kind of move on from there until Gilbert right at the end just leveled the place. <laughs> so Did he shift gears because he was like, oh, shit, I can't. Talk about this. Why did he tell the aristocrats joke? Why not just keep telling 9-11 jokes? Uh, it's it's that, uh, I, I think, thing of comedians know what I'm going through in this moment. If we want to kind of test the waters, what are the new boundaries? Uh, Cedric the Entertainer, I think, said it says it best in the documentary of, well, unless you say it, then you don't really actually know where the line is. So he was more trying to make the comedians in the room laugh by this old comedy community folklore joke of like, okay, I've gone to this one extreme of saying the worst thing I could possibly say. I've definitely crossed the line. Let me see if I can get some of you back on my side. Right. (laughs) And when the rest of the comedians are laughing, then it it kind of makes it a little easier for. Yeah. I mean, he he obviously read the room and heard the room specifically and was like, all right, I should probably. It seems like he's like, he's no, he's not a dumb person by any. So he's like, I should probably switch gears and then tell this. Like, I mean, it makes perfect sense. I mean, why not go a complete opposite direction and, and push that boundary, too, and then. Be like, all right, peace out. Yeah, I think what his quote was like, let me just go into the ninth circle of hell now and see how low I can go. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's that's um, but and then which is crazy because then that spawned its own documentary, like you were talking about earlier. That like just that little side joke because it's such a famous moment now in comedy history. What like Gilbert did and tell and then telling the aristocrats joke is is pretty. Pretty insane if you think about it, especially at a Hugh Hefner roast. Of all the people to be roasting, <laughs> it seems it all just seems too much. It just seems like it's just too much to to handle. And, um, so you know, I think like for me, what I found extremely interesting was the Scott Thompson stuff. Oh yeah, that you guys covered in the beginning of this doc because. Um, Scott Thompson, I love I love Scott Thompson and Kids in the Hall, and I didn't know anything about the story, and it just seems so on brand for Scott Thompson to have what he did <laughs> and when he did it, right? Um, in this doc, can you can we let's talk about that for for a little bit? Like, how did did you had you known about um, his show, his one man show in the New York and? Like what had happened or is that something you discovered through the doc? Uh, It was more through the doc and there was actually like so much more to that story that uh, where he's having these like prophetic (laughs) dreams and all this other stuff that just that just couldn't fit, you know, in there at the beginning of a film where we're trying to like get things moving. Um, But the gist of it was, yeah, that um, so a year before. 9-11, he had been working on a film with his boyfriend called Uncle Saddam, and it was kind of a a Kardashian-esque take 
on Saddam Hussein and the palaces and, you know, just kind of he's a rich, babbling, whatever, you know, idiot and star power, blah, blah, blah. But it was a spoof. And, you know, some group didn't like that this film was happening. And they found out where Scott Thompson and his boyfriend, Joel Solaire, lived in West Hollywood and ended up firebombing, setting fire to their trash cans, filled them with gasoline, set them on fire, threw red paint on their house to kind of look like blood and left a note inside that said, burn the satanic film or you'll be dead. So that was in 2000, um, and he'd been kind of fascinated with terrorism. Anyway, at that time, uh, man, again, critics. Right? Again, again, this story is way longer than than actually made it into the film. But he, being a good comedian, wanted to figure out how to turn this experience into comedy to work through it. So he started putting together a one-man show with all these different characters, his famous buddy Cole, and. You know, other ones uh, dealing with different aspects of terrorism and kind of traveled around, did some festivals. And then he had a New York run that was supposed to start on September 19th uh, at the uh, Bleecker Street Theater. And on September 10th, he put a bunch of posters up all over town. First show was called The Lowest Show on Earth, and it had him uh, on the poster uh, with a big glob of like cum running down his face and he'd just been smacked and very controversial to get people talking about it. And he thinks he's going to wake up the next morning on September 11th and have everybody talking about his posters and his show and not so much the case. Um, and then he tried to keep going with it and found out much to his surprise that people didn't want to hear a comedy show about terrorism. (laughs) (laughs) and you know he he tried to remount it a little bit later and it was a disaster and he he says he thinks his career never really recovered from it and personally he'd put in so much time and effort and money and and just heart like it was a show that he was very very proud of and it just disappeared so yeah stuff like that and yet the producers lived on (laughs) (laughs) I love the part in the film where, you know, Nathan Lane and and Matthew Broderick are talking about their experience of having the most popular show on Broadway at that point have to go dark. And they're like, "Ooh, yeah, terrorism show. I don't think we would have been able to get out of that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The year before 9-11, my boyfriend, Joel Soler made this film, and I produced it, and I wrote the narration for it. It was a documentary about Saddam Hussein's family, treating them as if they were the Kardashians. People, even now, they're afraid to speak, and they know the price. November the 1st, 2000, we were sleeping, and some group came to our home, took the giant garbage cans, filled them with gasoline, they set them on fire. They'd come in the house, and they'd put a piece of paper on the floor that said, in the name of Allah, the merciful and compassionate, burn this satanic film or you will be dead. I thought, can I make a comedy out of this? So I wrote monologues for all these characters dealing with terrorism. It was called The Lowest Show on Earth. And the very first monologue was Buddy Cole going to Afghanistan to take on the Taliban and bring home a vial of sweet smelling anthrax. 
started doing the show, traveling around. I landed a six-week run in New York. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I was really interested in one part of the doc because you really cover like so many different things. And I think like one part that stood out to me, you have some people that were like, uh, Arab American or Middle Eastern American comics and like them talking about their experiences feeling like racially profiled, targeted, even like people like Harakon Dabolu uh, and and like that whole Axis of Evil tour. I feel like that like on its own is such a fascinating thing for sure. Like um, uh, you thought of did you think of that as like a key component early on in planning this or you were already aware of that or how did you come to make that such a, a, a chunk of the film? Yeah, I've known Dino Badala since like day one of when I first moved to New York in 2003. And I remember him talking about how his life changed overnight. You know, in 2001, he used to be kind of more this Italian guy from Jersey, but then the other half of his family is, you know, Middle Eastern, and he started having, you know, storekeepers question, you know, what does your name mean on the credit card? Like, are you, are you a friendly Arab? Or are you an, <laughs> a dangerous Arab? And he actually learned more about his culture in the aftermath of that, and I saw, you know, how he you know, kind of co-started the Arab Comedy Festival in New York. I remember all, you know, those shows always selling out. Um, they had the watch list on Comedy Central, which they described as the Chappelle show for brown people. <laughs> and yeah, the Access of Evil tour was um, part of this story had to be cut out a little bit. Um, kind of originally started by Mitzi Shore at the Comedy Store before 9-11. It was... Um, oh, before 9-11. It, uh, it was called The Arabian Nights of at course. that point with Ahmed Ahmed, Maz Jabrani, and Aaron Cater and Sam Tripoli. And then after 9-11, it evolved into the Axis of Evil tour. Um, so that was something that I always known of from being in New York. And yeah, it was actually kind of the second segment of the film we put together. And uh, just as like a sample to show people of this is the idea of kind of what we're working on and just following how it went from, you know, there was somewhere between like five or seven, you know, Arab American comics and Muslim comics around that time. And because they addressed it head on in their material and, you know, they had these tours that would sell out around the world like that had never had there was never stand-up comedy in the middle east before they did this so finally when comedy central films it in 2007 and it's released this is the first time you actually see you know mainstream comedy embracing this realm you know it, it's it's not all about white guys all the time now you know you <laughs> see you saw a lot of diversity of, you know, from comedians of all cultures and backgrounds, kind of seizing the opportunity to talk to people directly on stage, you know, 
say what they're thinking. Audiences can see them and have a different perspective than just what they're shown on the news of just being terrorists and nothing more. Um, related to that, I was also thinking of like, I'm sure in your own personal research, uh, there were, must have been a lot of non-American perspectives. Jimmy Carr is really the only person we hear from from a British perspective. But I'm wondering if you also saw a lot of, you know, I mean, imagine uh, abroad, they already think of us in a different way than we do. So there's probably some interesting stuff even from like Canadian comics about about 9-11 material. Did you come across yeah, and, and Russell Peters is technically Canadian Russell too, Peters is Russell so you know. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Russell Peters. <laughs> yes. um, but Jimmy Carr, we uh, met him in person at I think it was like a Comedy Central Emmy party a couple years ago, and told him the idea, and he thought it was great. But it took some to convincing. You know, there's it has to be a real project. It has to have a distributor, has to have enough other high profile names. And then finally we were able to come back to him earlier this year. And, you know, he's kind of the poster child of too soon comedy in the UK. He's the, he's the Gilbert or the Doug Stanhope or, you know, of the UK. And he had amazing sound bites, (laughs) amazing sound bites. So yeah, there's not a much of, comedy is different overseas than it is in America, obviously. Um, but he was just as an individual, it kind of had less to do with him being from the UK and just who he was as a comic. And we knew we would have all sorts of spicy sound bites from him Mm. and he did not fail us. (laughs) Lots of spicy sound bites for sure. I, I, um, remember like after the nine 11, attacks like the whole fucking like you can't say anything bad about the United States or George Bush or anything ever that the United States is I remember that whole time period yes when like it was just like like speech and thoughts were just on lockdown they're just like now just like buy stuff love America and believe everything George Bush remember there was like that's my Bush do you remember that Oh. Yeah. Comedy Central, Comedy Central had like this this cartoon about George Bush that showed him in, as like a buffoon, basically, because he was a he was an idiot, you know, like fool me once, don't fool me ever. Well, I'll get you next time, you know, like what that 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 clip you guys show, and they have that's my Bush, which showed him as this like dumb, and then after nine eleven, boom, they just yanked that. They're just like we can't. It's, we can no longer show George Bush in a bad light, which is really scary. And I remember at that time, I re- still remember Keith Olbermann being like, um, he was on MSNBC at the time in like 2002, two, 2003. And he was like the first person I remember as a media person, a journalist say like, listen, this is bullshit. We, you know, we got into the war under wrong reasons. And, you know, uh, he would have like, my like uh, like whatever my least favorite person of the week thing and it was always George Bush or Cheney or you know any of those any of those assholes that were in that administration and I remember being like god damn thank you thankful like I'm so glad that we can like start talking about some of the bullshit that's happened I'm glad my point being I'm glad that your documentary wasn't just like comedians who helped heal America, you know, like you actually showed people with different points of view and, um, and different time periods, including, um, the axis of evil. And even my favorite moment, which I think for me is my memory, maybe the first viral video is Stephen Colbert at the white house correspondence dinner. 
I mean, the amount of times I sent that to people and people sent it to me and it was still kind of hard to find. Do you remember when you were like, mm-hmm. you had like a couple links that would send it, yeah. you know, like GeoCities or whatever. Lazy <laughs> Sunday and then Colbert roasting. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, yes. Yeah. yeah. Roasting the president. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was after like Bill Maher's politically incorrect show oh, right. got canceled. You know, totally he came that. back. Yeah. He came back the same day as Letterman, mm-hmm. and Letterman's a hero, and Bill Maher got canceled um, because he said that you know we've been the cowards, you know, shooting missiles at them from miles away. But if you're in a plane and you hijack it and you crash it in the building because of your beliefs. You know, say what you will about it. It's not cowardly. And that got him fired. Um, And yeah, this was around the time when comedy actually played a large role in being able to say these things that individuals necessarily couldn't. Right. Um, And The Daily Show became a Peabody you know, award-winning powerhouse in the face of the Iraq war. Colbert Report, yeah, like you were saying, starts in 2005. Uh, I mean, even Janine Garofalo, who was very outspoken at that time, you know, she had a lot of death threats and boycotts and, you know, all these yeah. conservative radio hosts, like, very much targeted her yeah. for this. It's like, like the, the right wing actually likes cancel culture sometimes. Yeah. Right. Huh. <laughs> but again, figure. this was back, you know, 2003 when b- before this actually existed. But yeah, it was definitely a different time to um, try and express your opinion. And unless you had, you know, this veil of comedy to do it through, it could be legitimately dangerous for your career. And still, and even so, even so, like the Axis of Evil guys, they got death threats too. Um you know, down at the La Jolla Comedy Store. Um, Mark Marin, you know, almost got into a fist fight with some Marine one time. And Maz Dubrani has a similar story about, you know, being challenged on stage. Like, this stuff was really happening in a way that, you know, we, we, we just kind of, you know, have cancel culture more online these days, I want to say. But back then, the stakes were... You know, really physically in front of you mm-hmm. in the room. So right. it's just, yeah, we we just kind of trace how you know this this process has been. How did we go from comedy's dead, we're never going to laugh again, up through everyone returning, and now these twenty years later, we have you know Pete Davidson mm-hmm. talking about his dead dad, you know, who was a first responder on 9-11, who, who, you know, a firefighter who died in the towers. He talks about that on the, on the roast and in his standup. So how did we kind of go from the point where this is going to end us to being able to move forward and heal from it? That's the, that's the doc. So let me, let me ask you, here's a math question for you, Julie. So oh does, boy. does the equation time plus tragedy plus time equal comedy, is that a true equation then? Does it still hold up? We, uh, we fought to kind of have our, our little subtitle be tragedy plus time plus comedy equals healing. <laughs> but then every you know, producers and street, they tell us it's a little too inside baseball that if you don't necessarily know the original equation, then the new one's not going to mean anything to you. So... Um, yeah, I think absolutely. Um, it, it traces back to 
you know, just my whole fascination with comedians telling the truth, um, even when it's difficult to. And boy, there was no more difficult time to than after 9-11. But I guess my point is, do we still need time in that equation? It seems like if you can make, like, I guess what your documentary is saying is like right after 9-11, people were able to use their comedy to help heal, but it was pretty soon thereafter. So is time still relevant in that equation? Do we still need time to equal comedy? Or can it just be tragedy plus comedy equals healing or something? Mm. You know, tragedy plus comedy equals time. Woo! I just blew your minds. I know. <laughs> but I'm just like to me, like after watching your doc, reading some stuff online about um, the the jokes of 9-11 and all that stuff. It's like now I'm thinking, do we really is time necessary? Does time doesn't heal all wounds? Therapists heal all wounds. You know, you know, what I'm saying like, does do we? I was going to I'm just working something out aloud. Think of like an example, like my favorite example might be Lori Kilmartin. Like live uh, tweeting her dad dying. I was just like, there's no time. But it's because mm-hmm. it's through her unique lens of it's happening to her versus this thing that's happening to everyone. Uh, maybe there's a little bit of interesting error. tragedy yeah. plus unique lens equals comedy. Yeah, well, it's mm-hmm. I, uh, what, what they would call in the uh, journalism racket uh, subjectivity. I, I think it is all subjective um if you get like right down to it the the message isn't necessarily that um there is no such thing as time anymore but it should be subjective to everyone you can't make these proclamations about what is and is not appropriate and apply it to everyone because who 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 are you to say what's appropriate for everybody else and comedy means different things to different people Mm-hmm. Like we're very much ensconced in comedy, so it's going to mean something very different to my parents living back in Missouri. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on the farm, you know? back on the farm. Yeah. Yeah. Are, are they still on the farm? They still are on the farm. Oh, my they, gosh. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for bringing this doc. Congratulations. Um and thank you for making this documentary and bringing this to us. I do want to, um, before we close, though, I, 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 I see you're a big Doug Stanhope fan. <laughs> yes. As, as am I. I love, and we have this uh, game we call Pitch a Doc. And in your, like, pre-production stuff, you mentioned a documentary you would like to pitch about Doug Stanhope. What would that be? I actually do want to really do this. and It's I a great idea. It. I mentioned it, and he's like, Fuck no. So, oh. <laughs> but I just, if everybody else agrees with me, that's that's good enough in a way. Um, just the idea of him, whenever he has to go on tour in the UK, which has to, quote unquote, is kind of a stretch because it, it's his job. It's what he does. But he hates the UK. He hates the food. He hates the weather. He hates the smallness. He hates the people <laughs> being weird. And, awesome. you know, when he has to do like a big show in the O2 arena or something. And then go from that to some little bar way out in, I don't know, Scotland, whatever. Um, he's been on these months, months long tours in the UK via bus. And apparently all the stories are just him bitching and <laughs> smoking and drinking and hating it the whole time. And uh, who wouldn't want to watch that? Take my money now. Right. <laughs> oh my God. I would love to watch. What would you call it? I'm just going to put you on the spot. What would you call that documentary? Oh, jeez. 
Uh, now, see, this is where the journalism part kicks in because I have to like take several hours and make lists of titles and figure out what's that works on multiple levels. Um, geez, I'm gonna be bad at this, and this is also why I'm not a comedian on stage. I don't, I don't have that rapid fire. I understand. We'll we'll use it. I'll uh, I'll come back with an answer when we promote it on social media. I'll have something great, and it's gonna blow everybody's minds. <laughs> I love it. And it'll change his mind, and yeah, it's gonna wanna happen. Want to do it then? Yeah, for sure. There's no stand hope. On like, the title alone. Just on the title. That's how you sell things, I guess nowadays. According, um, but Julie, this was awesome. Thank you. Oh, thank so you. Much Watch the film on. on Vice TV, and that's where you can find it. Yeah, premieres uh, on the 8th of September, Vice TV at 9 p.m. And we're also going to have a screening at Hollywood Boulevard's Chinese Theaters, world famous Chinese Theaters on September 11th, 2.30 p.m. I don't want to say it's going to be a September 11th party, but it's like if you don't have September 11th plans... Come to the Chinese theater. Cancel your September 11th plan, everyone. <laughs> and where do you want to, do you have like an Instagram? Cancel your September Right, right, <laughs> exactly. Do, where can people find uh, more about you online or, or the doc? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm at Julie Sebaugh, uh, J-U-L-I-E-S-E-A-B-A-U-G-H on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, the film's website is too soon doc.com. We have all the info there. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm most of all looking forward to kind of being finished with this after five <laughs> long years. Yeah, I bet. And I bet. freeing I've, up the brain space to, to take on new, exciting challenges. Well, what is, do you have another doc in mind outside of There's No Stanhope, which I just titled? <laughs> I'm, I'm working on a couple things. Um, nothing official, but... Um, yeah, there are people you've heard of, and whoa, how r- mysterious! Rightly, rightly deserve their own documentaries, and I hope to uh, be back here to promote them in a time that's not five years from now. <laughs> yes, well, we hope you are too. Thank you so much, George. Good job. Talk to you soon. Thank Thanks, you. Julie. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about SupDoc at SupDocPodcast.com, recapping reality since 2015. Our theme song was written by David Siegel, and our show was engineered by Will Scoville. Our associate producer is Nick Colsis. Please donate to the show through our Patreon page, patreon.com slash SupDocPodcast. And if you want to help us out in any other way, please just share the show with a friend. Join the Doc Talk and check out our hot takes, pictures, and videos on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We're SupDoc Podcast on all of those platforms. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can find Paco and George's comedy gigs when those are happening again on the About Us page on the site. SupDoc is by Doc fans for Doc fans. So if you want to advertise with SupDoc or if you got a film or opinions or if you want us to have a certain guest on, please hit us up. We'd love to hear from you and what you're docking out on. Email us at subduckpodcast at gmail.com. 